Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Okay, we're back. We're back. <laughs> this is going to be the most confusing Zoom we've ever done. <laughs> Let's do some introductions. So this is David, my my wingman. Hello. How are you? Nice to meet Hi, you. Hi, David. Heard a lot about you guys. Yes. Um, this is by far the most convoluted podcast we've ever organized with two time zones on completely different sides of the world. So all three That's thank how you I both. feel. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm so sorry to drag you out of bed, Leone. <laughs> I'm sorry. You look great. And Stella, thank you for staying. Always. Here. Always. Exactly. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Your, your hair is very cute, Leone. Yes. <laughs> Went to the hairdresser five o'clock in the morning. Oh, goodness. Fantastic. And Stuart, thank you for joining us as well from Real Time Machines. So Stuart's a local distributor of ultrasound machines, including the Vino machines. Yes. Well, I've been very excited about this episode because it's, well, it seems to be the topic of much heated debate and excitement, anticipation, people either pro, they're, they're, not, they're not for it, they don't understand how they're going to integrate it into their practice. So we thought, let's bring on the experts and yeah. actually have a deep dive discussion around ultrasounds and how we're going to potentially integrate it into cosmetic injectables on i guess a mass scale would be the would be the eventual goal i would imagine yeah definitely and also it's you know hopefully i can impart some knowledge seeing as i'm on this journey as well i met these guys about a month ago in paris and they took me through their amazing course and we've been in communication and you know we're going to be actually doing a course here um with some of some of leone's colleagues on august the 10th but we'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast let's do it let's do it <laughs> so guys why don't we start with leone and why don't you introduce yourself, Leonie? What's what's your background? We know that you're from Holland. We had your colleague Tom de Katz on, but tell us about your, you know, your background and how how you got into all of this yourself. Um, directly from birth on. Yes, but birth on. Okay. Yeah, give us the full story. <laughs> no, I'll skip. I'll skip a couple of years. <laughs> um, actually, in the Netherlands, we have a registered program for cosmetic medicine. I think we're kind of unique in that. And I did dermatology. I started with research in dermatology, actually, for hair um, transplantation, hair regrow. And that's how I got into the medicine field. And um, I started, I think, 20 years ago. And then I don't know if you remember, because you had a very, very, for a very short time, we had polyalkylamida, a permanent hydrogel. Yes, yeah. It had good references it had good publications uh, so we start using it and it took me four or five years then the first uh, adverse events came in migration severe abscesses and in the beginning you start to think that this is something that you did wrong but then we had so many complications so I started the questionnaire around my colleagues and we had a very high uh, complication rate. So we went to the inspection of health. We said, listen, this is going on. And she said, no, 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 no. I have here all the papers. It's very uh, approved material. Um, but we dived into it and then it was forbidden in 2006 finally, but it was taken off the market in the Netherlands earlier. 
Um, but then I was left with all my patients looking at me with their abscesses and with their migrations and their lumps and their bumps. So I went to my former professor and I said, listen, I don't know what to do with these patients because if they go to my private practice, they have to pay. Um, and then he said, okay, come here, start your polyclinic for filler complications. And I did um, 14 years ago. And I was there once every six weeks. And now we have six colleagues. We have three full polyclinic days. We have a three-month waiting list. Wow. wow. Um, and I was used to ultrasound because I also did phlebology. So we just, I don't know when actually, and I don't know if it was after a uh, heart. I, we just pick up the ultrasound device and we start looking at fillers. Um, and it took us four or five years to realize that there was actually anatomy visible underneath those fillers. Mm. So we went to the radiologists and we said, listen, can you help us uh, with the facial anatomy? They say, no, we cannot. And that's actually how we start looking into anatomy fillers uh, with Peter, my colleague. He joined me four years later when I started. Uh, and that's actually the beginning. That's amazing. And who taught you, you know, to use an ultrasound? Like, Where, where did you get it from and, and what you know, how, what it's, was your it's learning? It's funny because it's actually the same as we're looking at now. I did phlebology and we had this Doppler device. And then you were supposed to listen to the Doppler and hear if you had any insufficiency. That was it. And then we would have our clinical and our, you know, everything, your assessment. And then the hospital said, uh, look, Leonie, on this day, you're going to a course. It's a duplex course and you're going to do ultrasound. But my hospital was telling me, you see, there was no own initiative. I didn't have to do it myself. There were no costs involved. So I went to the duplex. Nowadays, no dermatologist will do venous insufficiency, varicose veins without duplex. It's yeah, completely yeah. normal and accepted. Um, with the big differences that it's all hospital-based. Yeah, that's true. And um, so I was used to ultrasound. Um, so I just had it. I didn't know where the filler was. I didn't know where it was located. And so I thought, well, let's have a look under the skin. That's amazing. Crazy. Yeah. Nice story. And what about you, Stella? Tell us tell us all about you and your background and, and how you came to be where you are now. Uh, sure. So uh, I'm from Estonia and uh, I wanted to be, I decided to be a facial plastic surgeon when I was 16 or 17 for no good reason. <laughs> I didn't have a role model. I didn't know what they were doing. I just decided to do that. And then I ended up coming to the States uh, actually about a little over 30 years ago. And that's just that's just what I decided to do. And so that's what I did. So uh, I'm a facial plastic surgeon. I've been in practice since uh, 2003. Uh, so I've been doing this for a while. Uh, and uh, kind of over time, the injectables have become a large part of my practice. And they are now still. I still do some surgery, but I do a lot, a lot of injectables. And because I have been doing a lot of nose injectables, you know, tear troughs, kind of a lot of complicated injectables and being a surgeon, um, I was always just kind of worried about complications and looking at complications. And then somehow I uh, was worried about blindness. And uh, I was thinking, you know, my friends are vascular surgeons and I was talking to them and I'm like, I'm wondering if, you know, if ever, like, God forbid, somebody has blindness here. Uh, maybe it will be easier to find the vessels, you know, the supertrochlear, superorbital, find them with ultrasound and then target them quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that was actually a um, paper from Australia, from Goodman, 
from Goodman Group about yeah. the treatment of blindness. So that's kind of how I started thinking about ultrasound. That's where I came from. And then I just, as, as I started looking, and then I just kind of realized everything that you can do with that. So then I went and read all of the Leonis papers. Oh, really? Uh, yes, I did. And then I, I sent you a lot of kind of uh, crazy messages. I was quite, <laughs> I was quite, I was quite the groupie. I'm still the groupie. I'm Leonis groupie. Uh, so uh, I sent her messages and I was like, just super, super excited. And then uh, we connected and then I had a complication in my clinic and only helped me uh, because she doesn't sleep and she basically like saves everyone all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, always. Yeah, always. So that's just kind of how we connected. And yeah. then uh, we did some courses together, virtual and then in person and uh, yeah, but hey. still, Stella, it's still funny that you, because what she did, she doesn't tell the whole story. She got herself an ultrasound, you know, nobody around her that, supporting her, whatever. She got herself an ultrasound, not knowing anything about ultrasound and start studying it. Wow. All right. Can so you, so I'll, tell, yeah. I'll tell a little bit of that story. Sure. Yeah. So, so I got myself an ultrasound, uh, was actually, I got myself, which a is weird, virus. right? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is kind of weird, but uh, uh, I can be a little bit of a weirdo. So I, I got myself an ultrasound. And then, of course, uh, when was that? A couple of years ago um, or a little bit more. So at least now there's some uh, courses or some training. There's a little bit more information, at least in what you're looking. Uh, because it's, you can't really train yourself based on like Leonie's articles or any kind of articles, right? If you know ultrasound, then you understand what's in the articles. So um, that's trying to figure out anatomy. I figured, you know, I would know anatomy because, you know, I'm a surgeon, but it's very, yeah. very hard with ultrasound. So just uh, kind of very little by little by little. And I was just looking and looking more uh, and uh, just trying to kind of figure out what things are. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. And well, I can be a little tenacious, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you have to be, don't you, especially when you're trying to break through new ground yeah. and do things that haven't been yeah. done before. Was it just you two guys that were traditional like that were originally pioneering these sorts of scans for aesthetic treatments or the other people before you? Oh, before <clears throat> I my first publication was in 2010. And I think very shortly there was also one, but there is a group in Italy doing ultrasound and also in Spain. And then we had Ximena Worthman, she's a radiologist and on the Department of Dermatology already for 20 years. And she also was one of the first starting to use ultrasound for skin. And she had a long way to go as well. Yeah, it's from Chile. Yeah, so if you start to look around, you'll find people who who did that um yeah but i don't know in america if you had anybody around so italy spain belgium in america i think it's it's just a little bit harder well, Stuart, what's your background because we've met we've met a few times in the last few weeks and you've been very kind with your time and showing me the vino device but you know what yeah, what sure. were you doing before you were selling machines <laughs> Um, well, before I got into ultrasound, my background was physio, um, right. and I guess as a physiotherapist, I was a little bit lucky because, you know, they were probably 10 or 20 years ahead in terms of what we know about musculoskeletal um, ultrasound, um, so it was easy for me to learn that 
Whereas coming into aesthetics, I really didn't have any idea. So it's been really interesting just kind of picking up the ultrasound machine and, like you say, just putting it on the face and getting to know exactly where everything is. Yeah, absolutely. And then when did you decide to sort of branch out from physio and get involved in distribution of products? Um, that was back in about 2015. So I've been doing it for about seven years now. And we right. supply ultrasound machines to all sorts of different fields. So physio, um, obstetrics, sports medicine, anaesthetists, and, you know, vets. And now in the last probably year and a half to aesthetic um, medicine as well. Fantastic. Well, guys, we've got 110 questions, so <laughs> we're going to jump straight into it. Maybe we'll start with Deloney. Um, for the, you know, there'll be a lot of listeners here. Most of our listeners are injectors, but we, you know, there's lots of people in the industry as well. What, what exactly is ultrasound for people who, who aren't quite clear on what we're talking about? Well, it's a better question for Stuart, actually, um, or for Stella, who's very technical. Uh, but if you want to have it simple, ultrasound waves penetrate skin. They're harmless, and then they hit on a certain structure. And if they hit something hard, like bone or teeth, sound waves will be reflected, and you have a white image on your screen. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have fluid or structures containing fluid, hyaluronic acid, kists, blood vessels, sound waves pass through. And then you have a black image. So this is the very simple version. And then, of course, you have a lot of gray in between black and white. But every structure has its own echogenicity, so its own pattern of reflection. And the only thing you need to do is get your brain used to the different patterns. Yeah. And I guess, you know, every woman who's had a baby will be familiar because they've had one on their abdomen at least once to check their baby. So that, that's an ultrasound. Uh, am I right in saying it's the same technology that, you know, a submarine would use to Sonar. sort of bounce yeah. sound waves back and forth and, you know, see, see what's under the, underneath? Yeah. Same, same kind of thing? Yeah. Yes. It's also, and dolphins. Um, dolphins, yeah. That's how they Dolphins, work. yes. Yeah. Echo. It's like and an bats. echo. Yeah. Yeah, it's very that. sustainable. <laughs> We're mimicking nature. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> yes. it's still, is it painful? Is it dangerous? Anything that we should be worried about with ultrasound? Uh, so uh, ultrasound is just a very, very high-frequency sound wave. Uh, so uh, it just goes through the tissue, and it just kind of there's a little bit of rarefaction, and that's how it moves through the tissue. There's no pain. There's no radiation. Uh, if you use a very, very high power, high frequency, then you can heat the tissues up. So that's how this high frequency, uh, um, the treatment works. Yes. But the diagnostic ultrasound is very, very low power. So there's no heating, there's no pain, there's basically nothing that happens in the tissue. Yeah, that's true. Like Ultraforma or um, Ulthera. Yeah, those, those are the ones that we have in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, like, what depth can you typically sort of reach when you're doing when you're doing these ultrasounds? Are there any sort of limitations in terms of like different uh, shape, uh, different shaped faces, or ethnic backgrounds? Is there any sort of differences there or challenges? Or someone stuffed with filler? Yeah, <laughs> stuffed with a thousand mils. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the depth kind of depends on the uh, on the device that you're using the probe, and usually the higher resolution the probe is, the less depth that uh, you can do. Uh, but even for the face, usually the, probably the deepest we need to go is maybe four centimeters. Most of the time, not usually two or three. So that's what we get with kind of those high frequency devices. In the body, obviously, the devices are different, so you can go a lot deeper. 
Okay. Right. Leonie, um, could you explain what we mean by resolution? Because, again, there's lots of injectors maybe starting this whole journey and they do a bit of a Google, they see all these different advi- uh, devices and it gets quite confusing. So what do we mean by resolution and, and how do you measure that? Oh, why do you ask all these technical questions <laughs> to me? So okay. what you have to keep in mind is that um, if you have, if you want to go deep, if you want to see the abdomen or if you want to see, have a look at your young baby, you need a low frequency. So you want to go, I don't know, three, five, whatever. For the face, you want to have a high frequency, mm-hmm. but not too high. So if you look at facial ultrasound, ideally, in the best world, you would have 18 to 20 megahertz, but 12 also works fine. So we're looking at a 12, a range from 12 to 20, 22 megahertz. Yeah. If you go higher... We even have, I think, 70 megahertz. You're too shallow. Yes. Those are great for tumors, for skin tumors, uh, because you only see very superficial skin. But we like to see bone as well. So you just need to take a depth that we see skin and bone. But it's not all about resolution. It's also the software. So uh, think about the first laptops. So even if you have a 20 megahertz device, and the software is not that great. You still do not have good details and technology. Yep. So you want to have at least 12 to, and then max 22 and good software. Okay. So to summarize, you need something higher yep. uh, megahertz and that will see a shallower picture, but it's a clearer picture. Yes, but it's not just all about frequency. And, and and a good device and a good computer, etc., etc. Mm. Okay. Yeah, right. So Perfect. can I add something about the resolution? Of course. The, res- the resolution per se is not necessarily correlated to that because there's different kinds of resolution actually on the devices. Uh, and then there's the resolution in the horizontal plane and then in the vertical plane. And there's actually a resolution which is called the elevation of resolution, which is depth of the image. Because the image depth, what you see on the screen, is just very, very thin image. And a lot of people say that it's kind of like a credit card thickness, but there's actually, it's not that thin. There's actually some thickness to that. Mm-hmm. So kind of the way that ultrasound can distinguish that, there's a resolution in all three dimensions and also mm. in time. Yeah. But then that resolution is different. Right. I've had, I've had the pleasure of being ultrasound, uh, being had an ultrasound done for looking to locate fillers in my body. So I've actually had the process done. I've actually looked at the screen and had no idea what I'm looking at. So for all the people that are sort of listening to this, looking, who've looked at ultrasound before, looked at the screens, what are you guys, in the, I guess in its simplest, most rudimentary form, what are you guys looking at on the screen? What are you looking for and how are you identifying like different landmarks? Um, I had a course yesterday um and we had beginners and advanced it's it's honestly looking ah you know when we had those mobile phones and you had the apps and you had to get used to all the technology yeah that's ultrasound i'm not looking at black and white if i see an ultrasound image i see a masseter muscle i see a parotid gland i see subcutaneous tissue the only thing is that you need to know how subcutaneous tissue is looking like and If we do the course, a lot of people are a little bit frustrated, but the end of the day, they're perfectly fine. So they do recognize tissue. Now, then the problem is you have to reproduce the tissue yourself. So Mm. you have to 
you, you know, somebody needs to teach you tech, how do you make technique? How do I make anatomy visible on screen? But getting into, so most people, at the end of the day, we have, uh, you missed that, uh, Jake, but we have a great quiz. People know what they're looking at. It's just your brain getting used to images. And I'm sure that if Stella looking at the screen, she's not looking at lobulated tissue with septae. She's looking at subcutaneous tissue or deep fat. Say yes, Stella. <laughs> yes, we get the pattern recognition. Yes, I will say when whatever Leonie tells me to do, I just do. <laughs> well, I think Leonie, I never argue. Leonie said you said I was so good that I could just skip the quiz because I was always going to get one hundred percent. I think that's what you told me at the time. Yeah, I told you. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, he likes having his ego stroke. No, very, no, very no, good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I've got a picture of Leonie clapping me. I've got proof. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get into your podcast. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. Well, whatever, that's true. whatever it takes. <laughs> no, but you know, taking this back to maybe beginners because I've, I've, you know, I'm, it's fresh in my mind you know i've seen ultrasounds in vascular surgery and and other sort of um, modalities but doing it to the face like you say when you first look at it you're like what the hell is that it's just gray and white and black and some bits look a bit snowy and and it's very difficult so it's everything's in a gray scale and, and i think leone said right at the start if, if you've got a solid object like bone or metal, it, it will give you a white color, whereas something like fluid is black and then everything else is in the middle. Right. So that's like the starting point that if you're a complete newbie, that, that's how I would take it. And then, you know, what I learned from the course or what it took away was you've got some standard positions. So you always look for a reference point such as the masseter or, you know, the parotid gland. So that sort of helps get your eye in, because if you know what that looks mm -hmm. like uh, regularly, then you can sort of, you know, get your brightness, which is called gain, to sort of understand the other structures around it. Is, is that how you would describe to, to a beginner? That's how we start to teach people to look at ultrasound. Yes, because you need reference points. Like yeah. exactly you say, you have the masseter muscle, you have the DAO, you have to understand how certain structures look. You know, you have to understand the rules of your car driving and all the signs before you start driving. Yeah. That's not how we started. Um, I remember that we had no clue where we were looking at. And it's <laughs> the same for Stella. It took her a long time to, to know what she was looking about. Um, I know that I spent hours with Peter and our anatomy book. And we said, Peter, you, there has to be fat pads. How do superficial fat pads look? Mm. We had no clue. So we just know the bone. We knew the muscles. And we were just staring at the screen. And then ultimately, we start to recognize patterns. But once you go through that, like Stella did, uh, it's much more easier to tell other people how to look at ultrasound. Mm. Um, and because we had so many difficulties in the beginning, we start to develop a structured plan, a structured course. So yes, actually, when I do an ultrasound examination, I still always use at the same reference point. I think in phlebology, you do it as well. You also start at certain structures mm. and then you find yourself away, uh, especially when somebody has a lot of fillers. The, anato the anatomy is different. So you still like to look at your reference point. Yeah, right. uh, just to bring Stuart in actually, because we were having a chat the other day, and you you told me yourself that you 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 were just playing on your own face and your wife's face just to sort of understand your own devices that you're selling. So again, you've gone through that journey. How, how did you find sort of trying to interpret all this grey stuff? Absolutely. I mean, I just lean back on what I learned with musculoskeletal ultrasound, and I do think that those standardised positions are probably more important than anything for example if you put the ultrasound probe up against your temple 
Um, there's some there's some very familiar views that people who've been watching this on Instagram will be able to spot straight away. And so just learning it and just finding where those standard positions are um, makes it really easy to recognize, especially when you're going to go from person to person, um, because you put the probe there, you get that landmark, and then you know what the what the different structures are and how it is different between different people as well. So I think those standardized positions are super important in the hmm. face. Well, it's like learning a new language, isn't it? I mean, there's always going to be a steep learning curve at the beginning. Um, but yeah. as human beings, we're very good at recognizing patterns. It's one of our strengths as a species. So once you get over that that yeah. hump, it should start to become, theoretically, should yeah. start to become a lot easier once you start understanding what it is you're looking at. Now, in terms of... it does of, get easier and easier and easier. Yeah. Just, just looking at the same structures uh, yeah. in a short amount of time, it gets quite easy. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, products on the market, lots of different devices. Am I correct in my assumption that there isn't one that's specifically designed for the face yet or specifically designed for aesthetic purposes? Because I'm just putting my, my business cap on here and thinking um, there is a huge yeah. opportunity here for a, a device that eventually becomes, you know, very easy to use, um, designed yeah. specifically for aesthetic purposes, because I can see this becoming, and Jake and I have had lots of discussions around this. To me, it seems like the obvious thing that's going to happen in the future is there'll be a period of time where you have, you know, pioneers like yourselves who were the first to do it, the early adopters, people will start, you know, catching on, then it will start to become probably what I think will become normal standard practice. And it'll be something that's just, how did we ever do without it before? there's no specific devices there's just settings there's just settings and high frequency devices and the aesthetics can be one of the indications but then you know you know like you said with an entrepreneurial mind somebody will just slap can slap aesthetics on it and say that this is device for aesthetics yeah well i do hope because now we have a lot of portables um my colleague is doing a lot of liposuction lipofilling i have a very high end uh device which is also very big and difficult to move around and i have these small portables and whenever i'm looking for it it's in his theater because it's small it's handy he puts a sterile glove or sterile um probe cover on it um so those ones are very easy in the theater um so i actually hope that we're going through the same path as the mobile phones that yeah. in the end we have a very cute small handy high device uh, aesthetic probe easy to use yeah yeah i agree yeah i think that will be the case in the future for sure and um and i think the reason why you're going to have so many different devices still is because there are different uses for it so you might yeah. take it into theater um or you might want that big one for when you're doing all your injections because you got the nice big screen the little transducer so um, yeah, I do think there's always going to be a need for a different device and matching, yep. matching the right device for the application. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's a new market to be developed. You yeah. also see the same in dermatology. Dermatology is just starting now to adapt ultrasound. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, for the injectors listening who are maybe on their early journey of injecting, let alone ultrasound, there's at least three main reasons I can see why we might introduce ultrasound into our practice. There's vascular mapping, which basically means looking for blood vessels. Two, maybe making our injections more accurate, or maybe even for research purposes, sort of looking at what's happening under the skin. And then there's the complications management. Are there any other main reasons why you guys are using ultrasound? Or, or do you agree that those are the sort of the three reasons? To learn anatomy. I think one of the good reasons, yeah, I was just going to say, is to learn anatomy. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah. 
I Fair think it's incredible to, to you know, learn. Yeah. The funny thing is, we did have a plastic surgeon yesterday in the course, and he said, I thought that cadaver courses were the top, but honestly, ultrasound is. And um, whatever I get back from people who did the course and who start doing ultrasound, same for me. Uh, I thought I knew my anatomy. Then plastic surgeons, honestly, I think they're no better their anatomy because they're in the face and we have to rely on books and anatomy and cadaver courses. But ultrasound anatomy is dynamic anatomy. It's not static. It's dynamic. You see the area that you're going to inject in. You see if it's operated or not. You see how the tissue is behaving. You see also how your filler is behaving into tissue. Uh, you see the mobility, the movement. So you're going from static to dynamic, movable, uh, visible ultrasound. And you see all your layers at once. So you start to understand in your head how the SMAS goes into the orbiclass oculine muscle, how the superficial fat pads move above it. So you get a completely dynamic view of anatomy. And most people doing ultrasound, that's what they love the most about anatomy, that you get these images in your head. And even for plastic surgeons who are used to facial anatomy, get a different view of mobility of the head. Yeah, it, it's kind of the bridge between cadaver and book it you know because it, it's neither tangible because you can't touch it or get inside it I, I guess apart from with a needle but you can see it all there but it's still moving it's kind of yeah it's like a pseudo book cadaver <laughs> I don't know how to put that any other way um so why don't we start with the the first reason i mentioned vascular mapping i mean how does an injector practically, or how do you guys practically use that on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you, do you look for any particular vessels every time? Because we know that they're I also don't. variable. You don't. Okay. So I don't. let's I start with you, Lenny. No, no, honestly, <laughs> I don't. Uh, it's a great exercise for you to manage ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So it's a great exercise. It's very handy. Um, no, I'm just looking at the area I want to treat. And I use it, of course, for vascular adverse events. But if I want to do your temple and I know what area I want to inject, I'm just looking at that specific area. Is there something in my way? Right. Okay. So you put your probe on, then you press color Doppler, which is basically, you know, looking at the vessels. And if there's nothing there, away you go. So you're not looking sort of specifically for vessels. You're just sort of doing a second check as you're injecting. Yep. Only if people are operated and they have a no surgery or something else. Only if I'm interested and then it picks up time. But you don't want to invest too much time if you do treatments. You just want to have it as an add-on tool to give you more information. So that's how we use it during treatment. But but to be fair, you know, David and I have spoken about this a million times before we, we had you guys on. And we kept on arguing, well, what would be the practical use of me using it tomorrow in my clinic? And Temple was the perfect example. You know, if you do the standard technique of needle down on bone and sort of the one up one over technique and i'm not criticizing arthur's technique you know it's, it's been useful for years but you know if you can do exactly what you just said leone and, and just have a quick look and if the vessel isn't deep down on the bone then sure then that's a valid yeah. method but but sometimes i do tell patients to have a big chance to get a bruise yeah. Because I'm looking at the ultrasound, it was like, oh, okay, this is really superficial in my way. Um, and sometimes patients have arteries and veins everywhere you want to inject, and then I do it ultrasound guided. 
Yeah, well, that's fair. And how about you, Stella? Would you, would you, do you use vascular mapping more on a more formal basis or not really? So, you know, I do a lot of my injections actually ultrasound guided. Then sometimes I don't even map before. I just kind of, you know, I put my needle or cannula and then put ultrasound after, and then you see that. Uh, otherwise, you know, if I don't do it, for example, temples, I still sometimes I would do one up and over, and sometimes I do a combination, you know, sometimes I want to put the layer fill in the, t- in the temple. So then I will kind of check, see if there's any deep arteries there, do a deep injection depending on what it is. And then I do my more superficial, you know, the interfascial space, then I do ultrasound guided. Uh, One kind of like warning that I always like to warn people that I teach, that especially when people start looking and depending on the device that they have, if they don't see a vessel, it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just might mean that they are not looking very well and they just don't maybe... um, some devices that just, you know, cannot find all the vessels, you know, facial vessels, they're tiny, mm. tiny vessels, tiny flow. It's not like trying to find a carotid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then another thing also, you could, they have to be very careful, you know, that they put the device in the same direction that they will put the needle. Otherwise, yeah. you know, they might be looking yeah. at a different spot too. So, so maybe yeah. the, the take home message is don't inject with impunity. Just because you can't see it on the ultrasound, always. still, yeah, that's always a message. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's also yeah. one of the discussions. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's also one of the discussions that we have. That it, you're not able to see all vessels, but ultrasound adds more safety. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no hundred percent safe uh, injection. And people are sometimes worried after a one-day course because they think, okay, I start to understand, but I don't master it completely. But I always tell them, you know, don't worry because you did it always without ultrasound. So just get used to the images, improve your technique. And all those years you have not been using ultrasound. So, you know, it's an extra tool. Get yourself used to it. And then if you're familiar, you will add more safety. But in the beginning, you never used it. So, you know, it's not an extra you don't have to be afraid that you don't see it because you do your normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you both still use both needle and cannula or have you, have you noticed that you, you, you've you moved more to one way or the other having used ultrasound? I start to use it differently. So I start what I was used to, to taught. And now that I see the backflow of filler, how it behaves in tissue, I still use both. But I start to use, where I used to use needle, I now start to use cannula. Uh, or I use needle with a different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at the temple, we inject in a very perpendicular way to the bone. If you do a one-up, one-over, and then you do have more spread into other tissues, also a bit in your superficial temporal fat compartment. If you have a little bit more of an angle with your needle, it stays better in the layer that you want to have it in. So I start to look into different techniques and also a cannula if i use it i like to use it with a very shallow angle mm-hmm. so i keep my filler in the deep fat where i want to have it okay and how about you stella have you have you changed your technique or you know are you just doing it under vision uh, but same I, technique I, I don't think i changed the technique because of the ultrasound uh it's just you know it's kind of your practice changes and then you sometimes kind of adopt different techniques uh and then you like some of them and some of them don't yeah, like uh, I mean, other than of course doing all the ultrasound guided injections. Uh, mm. For those, I usually use uh, cannulas for fillers, and then if I do dissolving, then most of the time I actually prefer the needles. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's another. Uh, I just take over the the questionnaires if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, no, but I'm I'm really curious, Stella. You start because people always say, "But do I have to do ultrasound guided injections now?" And that's very difficult. But the thing is, if you start to do ultrasound, you can kind of like to do ultrasound guided injections. And that's what I hear you say. You say, "I do a lot of ultrasound guided injections." Why do you do that? Uh, so uh, it depends. Uh, some places I kind of like to do it for safety, uh, kind of with a caveat that, you know, you compromise a little bit of a quickness of your injection that might take longer. Uh, and then you kind of have to make sure that the aesthetics don't suffer too, because when you do those ultrasound-guided injections, and if I want, I want to spread it in the temple, then you have that probe on the top, but then you have the gel, and you can't really see what happens to the surface of the tissue. Mm. Because with that gel, the surface is distorted and you don't see what happens until you wipe the gel off and then you see that there's a lump. So then you either, then um, there's just kind of all those little accommodations that you have to do. So I do it either for safety, uh, either for um, uh, kind of like, um, yeah, depending on like what layer that I mm. want to do, basically. Yeah. And then if you want to keep your confidence, you kind of have to do that too, because if you never do it, then you... Uh, cannot be confident um, yeah, yeah. Doing that. how do you uh, practically perform that Stella because I'm um, injecting in and itself is is you know you, you need all of your wits about you and you know using both hands you've sometimes got some difficult access to the patient's face depending yeah. on your room situation so how are you actually scanning someone's face and injecting at the same time or do you have assistance from from someone in in your clinic or how does that work I like to have an assistant but a lot of times I don't so the first thing that you have to do is actually to actually try to set up the patient in a comfortable position. And so you put the patient so that, you know, you can kind of have your hands in a comfortable position. And then your ultrasound screen should be behind the patient's head so that you don't turn around because then that's really distracting and then you can lose it. So you really, and ultrasonographers are usually very good at that because, you know, for them, ergonomics are very, very important. They spend the whole day doing that. So ergonomics is kind of everything you have to set yourself up and then everything actually becomes much easier. So then once you have it and then, you know, you just put the needle in cannula and then usually, you know, on, I have like a little stand. So I grab the gel, put some gel and then I put the probe on. Uh, the probe is just kind of hanging there. But it's, it's honestly, if, if you look into medicine, all physicians are performing their ultrasound guided treatments. We're not used to it, but we are a little bit behind. Um, if somebody holds the probe for me, I get annoyed because I, I'm missing my eye-hand coordination. Mm. And um, all anesthesiologists, rheumatologists, we share the department with the rheumatologists, they do it themselves. And uh, Jake, you manage the chicken. Um, it's not <laughs> difficult. What? It's actually, people get very happy because it's such a simple procedure. And we're all doing it. It's not that, uh, you know, orthopedic surgeons have a special gift for ultrasound-guided injections. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you do with was, the chicken? <laughs> what she was referencing <laughs> on the course is a fun part of the course. So we all get a chicken leg right. and then we inject a bolus of filler, obviously deep down inside, and then you visualize it with the scanner. Yeah. And then you can actually pass a needle into the center of your bolus and deliver some highlights. Oh. So start, you know, on, on day one of doing a course, learning how to dissolve complicated fillers, etc. So, you know, you walk away thinking, 
wow, I've got some skill that I can go away straight away from day one and, and apply in my clinic. But of course, there's still a huge learning curve behind that. But, yeah. I, I, you know, I think I mentioned in our previous podcast, I think a lot of injectors are scared of ultrasound because they think it's too difficult or too alien to what they normally mm. do. But I can categorically say, having never ultrasounded in my life, that that's not true, but it will still be, you know, a big learning mm. curve. So, yeah. 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 Well, well, maybe this is a question for all of you. Maybe we'll, we'll start with, with Stella though, is that, you know, there is still apprehension and skepticism or potentially even criticism around ultrasound because, you know, you can't scan every injection, um, you know, a bit of an old school attitude sort of surrounding the usage of it. I mean, what would you kind of say to that in response to all those that are listening that are listening that might have might have heard that or think or thinking in that way? Uh, just to yeah. add actually yeah. it, my own experience in Paris was there was I, I, I visibly and audibly heard some scoffs. You know <laughs> Yeah, scoffs and people kind of sneering at it, saying, oh it's a bit silly and it takes too much time and blah blah blah. And that is a, a real yeah. thing that I think injectors should be mindful of that they will get that attitude mm. so it, it'd be interesting to see what you what you guys say about that and how you've battled it yourself yeah you know like with any new technology coming into any area really in an area in medicine there's always apprehension if somebody uh, a little bit older has been doing things for a long time or you know even some younger people um they don't want to be left behind. So it's very easy to criticize new technology. And then you don't have to learn. You don't have to adopt. If you have a lot of clout and you just say it's bad and people automatically believe you. Mm. Um, and you don't want, you know, a lot of people just kind of don't want to go through that learning curve. And maybe they will not look very amazing for the next several months or the next couple of years while you're doing that. And they're used to looking amazing and kind of like, uh, being the stars in their field. So I, I think there's a part of that. Mm. Uh, and a part of that, I think, just comes from ignorance, right? People really don't understand what it is and what you can do and what you can achieve with it. And, mm. I, and I think the big the big part of it is just kind of educating people, basically, uh, yeah, like what you can do with it, what it can contribute to your treatment, what you contribute to learning. Um, and I think once people actually understand uh, I think they'll be probably more prone to actually say, you know, maybe I will try it because I yeah. think it will help yeah. me as an injector. It will help my patients. How about you, Leonie? Because you're one of the pioneers. So what were your colleagues saying, let alone, you know, other injectors? We had the same resistance in the Netherlands and now it's in our educational program for cosmetic medicine. Young people love it. Young people are innocent, eager to learn. Everything they do is new. Remember when you start in the hospital, everything is new. So they pick up ultrasound very quickly and they love the fact that they can see what they do and they love the fact that they see anatomy. So for them, it's very reassuring. But I think, you know, human, we, that's what Stella said, we don't want to change. So look, if you look in the history of medicine, it always went like that. If you talk to Ximena, she had the same problems if if you look at um, all type of operations that we had, uh, it's always a big hurdle. And it's okay because you have to prove that there's some initial or additional value in your new technique or in your new operation or in your new whatever. I think in every field you have innovations mm. and you have to prove them. And it's annoying. I can understand that if you have your practice, you're busy for 10 years, you're doing a great job. Patients do not always come back if they have a complication. Mm. We always ask them, did you went back to your treating physician? And they say, no, I'm not going back. 
So you might not be aware of the complications that you have caused. And then suddenly you have to implement a tool that's annoying, time consuming. You have to learn something. Uh, so I can completely understand that. Um, I try to, uh, you know, get my parents to the WhatsApp so I can send them pictures every day. No, they don't. Um, <laughs> so gradually, I think that we, we all have new things to adapt. And uh, maybe I just won't want to do the next innovative thing. You know, maybe I think I'm not going to do that. I'm fine. Mm. Yeah. Well, what about you, Stuart? I think if, if I can just add something, just in terms of like people really like not knowing what it is and what it does, like the question that people were asking, you know, in Paris at Incas, uh, how it can be sterile and it, uh, you can never have sterile injections. Uh, and again, what people don't understand that everybody in medicine doing those sterile injections for joints, for other things, people are a lot more sterile in other places. They're using it in surgery, a lot more sterile than what we're doing in the face. We're not using sterile mm -hmm. gloves. Our procedures are not sterile. Uh, but you, you know, you put a sterile shield on ultrasound and you put a sterile gel and then you basically, you can make your technique a lot more sterile. So again, it just kind of people just need to learn and understand that there's all those capabilities. Yeah. And, and we have a choice, right? Um, so if you go into anesthesiologist, uh, in the, you have to use ultrasound. They teach you that in your medical procedure, in your residency. There's no question where you're going to use it or not. Um, we have private practices. We have no continuous educational program. So we can, we can choose whether we're going to use it or not. And that's also a bit more difficult, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And what about you, Stuart? I think that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a tool and it doesn't necessarily have to be used in uh, the same way for every single person. But if you have the tool, you have the option, you have the option if you want to, if you want to have a look and see if there's a vessel there, um, if there's some filler that you want to dissolve, you have the option. So I think it's a useful tool. Um, and I think that a lot of, I think that it probably will become the standard in the future. And I think that some people will use it for every single patient. And then there's going to be some people who will just use it sometimes and for certain things. So I think that's the thing with ultrasound. You don't have to take it on and do it a particular way, especially at the moment. But I think it is a very useful tool uh, for a lot of different things. And people are going to find, there's still people that are going to find their own ways of using it. Um, so I think that's still developing. Um, what's your experience when you go into an Australian clinic, Stuart? Do you find the doctors, I mean, presumably if they've invited you in, they're keen, but yeah. have, you, have you found, you know, people who are kind of like, oh, this is a bit silly. I don't think, th th you know, think this is for me. I haven't. I haven't come across it yet. I'm sure there probably are people out there that think exactly that. Um, and I think with anything that's new that comes along, you're always going to get a certain percentage of people who are never going to use this technology. They're just yeah. not like, say they've been doing their own thing for a very long time and it's just going to be too difficult for them mm. to change what they're already doing. Um, I don't think that's the vast majority, certainly from what I've experienced so far in Australia. I think that people are really excited about implementing the technology and i think people are really interested to see you know exactly where it's going to end up as well but uh from what i've seen so far everyone's very excited about it mm. it's it's something that sort of plagues all of our, our sciences i think all is a lot of this dogma um when you look through our medical history i mean i'm not a, i'm not a doctor i've said, said this all the time but I, I study it a lot and look at the history of it um you know the guy that sort of theorized germ theory um, many, many years ago, they put him in a mental asylum because they thought he was crazy. Um, you know, doctors yeah. used to recommend smoking to people. I mean, so what we know today, yeah. we will find 
sorry, what, what, what were the questions that we have today or the things that we doubt we'll find or the things that we think we know today, we'll find out that we were so wrong mm-hmm. in a very short space yeah. of time because things are, are moving and continually changing all the time, which is why I think these yeah. sorts of communication channels we have on people that are brave enough to be pioneers in these areas that we're able to get this message out and educate people rather than just hearing, yeah. hearing one voice. But it might be, you know, that in 20, 30 years' time, we say, do you remember that we used ultrasound? Yeah. And then we say, really? We used ultrasound? That was yeah. so silly. Yeah. You know, uh, you never know. Yeah. Well, my opinion is that we'll actually be saying, do you remember the days where we did temples where we just kind of guessed <laughs> without an yeah. ultrasound? <laughs> yeah. That's what we'll laugh at. Well, we do it now before we even knew Correct. about vascular occlusions when, Correct. when fillers just came onto the market. We were just injecting it like nothing could go wrong. And we yeah. had no idea that there was this ticking time bomb going on. I mean, you know, you go to every conference, every single aesthetic conference, there's a, a talk on blindness and yeah. occlusions every single time. And everyone's interested and everyone's a bit scared. And yet, you know, you hear this resistance to ultrasound and it doesn't add up. It's, no. It seems crazy. So, yeah. Well, looking at, uh, we call it vascular adverse events because we still don't know what the course is. We did now more than 110 cases ultrasound guided. Um, we're looking at blindness. So we're still doing a lot of research to understand the reason what really happens to blindness, what the mechanism is. But to treat adverse events with ultrasound once you manage ultrasound, it's it's simple. So we have six colleagues and we're not, nobody's panicking. We're like, oh, when do we have time? Uh, do you have time? Well, to be, it's, it's honestly, if you master ultrasound, adverse events are um, not difficult to treat. So that gives you a lot of rest in your head. Yeah. And mm-hmm. also a lot of peace for the patient. Mm. Well, whilst we're talking about that, that was going to be our, our sort of, you know, we spoke about vascular mapping. We were going to talk about more precise injecting, but let, let's focus on complications because you're obviously working with Tom at your complication center. So yep. guys, if you missed, uh, you know, a few episodes ago, we had um, Leone's colleague, Tom DeCatz on, and he spoke about all of this, but, you know, take us through a common scenario. Someone's sent to your center, Leone, and, you know, they're complaining of lump, firmness, swelling. What, what do you actually do with your ultrasound and what do you generally see? Are there particular patterns or common things or is it very well, varied? Turn it around. If you see a lump, if you see a lump, where do you think it's located? You don't know. So, um, most of our skin, what do we have? Nine skin layers, five skin layers, depending mm. on the area where you are. Um, for, honestly, complication management, I think ultrasound is, um, you cannot do it without it. Mm. There are many things, like for example, we see inflammation. Uh, even Tom, who's doing inflammation, always uses the ultrasound. Is the skin involved? Is it just a granuloma? Where is it located? Is there an abscess because it's in a glandular tissue? Is there an abscess because you have a phlebitis? Mm. Did you ever realize that if you inject your filler on top of a vein or just into the fascia where the vein is coursing, you develop a phlebitis? And uh, it looks like an inflammation. People are set on antibiotical treatments for a long time on prednisone. But you have to remove the filler and you don't know where the filler is uh, because you see an inflammation. Um, but phlebitis is something that we only discovered because we were using ultrasound. Um, you have it everywhere, but also in the face. And if you think a lump is very superficial, it still might be injected in the fascia, 
pushing up that fascia. So it feels as superficial. It is at the same level as your subcutaneous tissue, but it's just being pushed up and it's in the fascia and it's much more difficult to reach. So honestly, with ultrasound, you know, if you want to do surgery, you have to open that leg, right? Mm. Otherwise, you don't know where you have to remove or stitch anything. And if you want to diagnose a problem, you, you can do it blindly, but it's much more handy if you can see the problem. Yeah, I think that that's the practical reason why a lot of listeners will hopefully understand why ultrasound is so important. Because, you know, we'll get patients with lumps and bumps and things that aren't perfect yet. To use your highlays blind seems a bit silly, but that's what we're doing currently. Well, and also just the amount of the volumes that you're putting into people, because you're just hoping that if you spray enough in, you're going to get rid of the problem. Yeah. So, I mean, what sort of, I think we have sort of covered this before, but could be worth discussing again, is like what sort of differences in highlays are you actually using when you can actually pinpoint the issue as opposed to when you're just kind of guessing where it is? On average, we use 75 units of highlays to dissolve a lump, to treat vascular adverse events, to whatever. I mean, that's, because that's you're very specific. Yeah. That's a paradigm shift, really. Yeah. I mean, you're injecting what thousands of units well, into people. You know, we're sort of talking amongst ourselves, and I even heard a colleague today say, you know, she has at least three or four boxes of highlays, which is like, you know, twenty thousand units in her clinic. It's, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. that's how silly it is because we don't have any other way without seeing the vessels if we have an occlusion. Well, yeah, and then I guess if you sort of take that that concept and then combine it with what we were talking about the other day with Dr. Bentali, who there are people like him starting to come out saying that they they are seeing indications of potential issues with highlays mm. causing, you know, uh, depression yeah. and, and sorts of issues with, with, the, with the body that we don't think is happening yet, but may, maybe it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you ask me, and when you talk about complications, I'm getting a little bit more radical, a bit more Dutch, actually. Um <laughs> I think that, you know, we have responsibilities for treating patients. Mm. And if we cause the complications, we should be the one managing that complication. And if you're able to do that with a very low, very targeted, and not only it's using a low dose, you also see what you're doing. Yeah. And you can have a very specific follow-up. You see the lump, you inject it. And then the next time you can see, is it gone or not? I think somehow we are obliged to our patients know that we use this type of visible technology instead of doing blindly yeah i got i got, just had a question that we haven't planned but i'm gonna ask stella because you're in the states and they're very litigious in the states yeah. <laughs> so it mm -hmm. you know you've obviously got ultrasound in your clinic and you're a facial plastic surgeon and you can handle probably most disasters but if you had a colleague who was injecting and created what looks like an occlusion develops into a necrosis and god forbid it goes to court and the judge says, well, hey, um, there's, there's these other really um, advanced doctors using this ultrasound thing. You, you didn't have it in your clinic. Do you think there are legal implications that you might have injectors who are not using best practice? Or is that still a little so bit it, contentious? It's, By the way. Not, it's not considered standard of care yet. Right. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that injectors are liable if they don't have ultrasound. There might come a point that they'll be liable for not mm -hmm. using ultrasound, you know, like not using a sterile technique or something. Uh, but at this point, I think it's not considered standard of care. And uh, Fair enough. there are so many occlusions that, you know, I hear about all the time, you know, we don't have a complication center. Uh, and so all those patients, they end up 
being treated. Sometimes they treat it for days. I treat them for like four or five days and they call me and I'm like, okay, well, you're in a different state. This is already too late. I understand patient has a wedding in two days and now she has necrosis on her face. There's like there's nothing I can do. And and honestly, and the last thing that I want to do is obviously touch that patient because then I kind of assume partial liability. So then we kind of have to deal with all of this situation being in the States. Um, but I think there's really just despite kind of like all the guidelines and regular management of occlusion, mm. not including the ultrasound, I think they're really not managed very well. I just see a lot of bad cases. From, from a patient's perspective, and I, 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 as someone that's owned clinics in this space for a really long time, I'm always thinking about the, the patient journey and the patient experience. I'm wondering how do your patients feel about you having this technology in your clinics? Is it something that you promote, you talk to them about? Is there a level of comfort that comes I think from these sorts of... patients love it. Yeah. And patients love it. So, you know, also, you know, when I kind of teach my new injectors and I say, you know, once you start using it, I think a lot of times you will not know what you're looking at for a long time. Yeah. And then you kind of start learning a little something, but then still a lot of times you don't learn. But patients don't know that. So yeah. um, they're a lot more comfortable. Yeah. That. yeah. And I think yeah, my patients, obviously you don't want to create too much illusion. Yeah. 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 No, my patients are, are not leaving me. Even I like to have some patients leaving me. Um, <laughs> but they don't. Just increase and, your prices. Uh, <laughs> some actually love to watch. Some actually are telling me, oh, now you do two boluses of fillers uh, instead of one. <laughs> so, uh, and yeah. some keep their eyes closed because they think it's a bit scary, but they still like it. Uh, now, patients really love ultrasound and the extra safety that yep. you're adding. And a lot of physicians also charge. So if they start doing ultrasound, they mail their patients. They say, listen, we're going to add an extra layer of time and uh, safety to the treatments so they charge a bit extra and that helps them to cover the cost of the ultrasound yeah. yeah well we're living in a world now where patients are so um, empowered you know we all make jokes around people who think they've got a medical degree because they've got google but in all seriousness i mean patients do take the time to educate themselves they are reading forums they are looking at these types of information and we may find that even if there's resistance from certain um, segments of our industry it'll be driven probably so hard by patients who are demanding the extra safety that it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. at the end of the day what some practitioners think if they're resistant, that the patients in the end will determine where this goes. Well, I have to say, even in, yeah. you know, in the few weeks that I've had a device, because Stuart um, yeah. kindly loaned me a Vino device, handheld one, just doing it on a handful of patients, they're like, oh, I've, I've never seen this before. This is really cool. Is What's fancy? that thing? Yeah. And they become part of the process. They're understanding the anatomy. Um, they're immediately reassured that you know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's a very powerful tool for an injector yeah. to sort of solidify, you know, that they're trying to do everything they can to, to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. It's great for showing patients exactly what you're doing and letting them, you know, be part of that treatment as well if, if you want them to be part of the treatment and just seeing exactly where things go. Yeah. Thanks, Leonie. Sorry, Leonie, go on. Um, yeah, you're asking Stella and me questions, but actually it's nice because you're completely new in this field. What is your reason to get into uh, ultrasound? Myself. Yeah. So I've been hearing about ultrasound for at least three years. And actually, I believe you guys were due to be here just before COVID hit. So I was going yeah. to do that course. And, and of course, things have been extended. And I think Australia is behind now as a result of just COVID. It's not because, you know, we didn't want to learn. It's just, you know, Europe sort of opened up and America opened up and we haven't. So from a, you know, looking out into what's happening in the world and seeing people like yourself and Stella, 
I personally feel like I'm, you know, behind educationally. And so I'm hungry for that. So I, I want to use it for all the reasons that we've mentioned. Safety. Um, you know, when I first spoke about it in its most simple form with David, I said, look, I'm going to go on this course in Paris and I want to learn takeaway things. Like if I can scan the temple, modify my technique if I have to, then great. I don't need to know anything about the rest of the face for now. I can learn, but at least one thing I can make better and safer. Um, yes, there's a complications issue. I get, you know, sent um, lumps and, and bumps and pa patients can actually self-refer to me. But again, I'm, I'm doing it blindly and I'm sort of guessing there's all there's almost never any good history. The patient doesn't know what filler was used. They don't know where, you know, what depth it was. They've often fallen out with the other doctor because yeah. they've got the lump and they don't want to go back. So you're almost doing this blind. And like Stella said, you take on that responsibility. So mm. if I can look in their face, look at the lump, assess it, define it, target it, you know, it, it, it's mm. obviously going to be better for me, but the patient as well. So, yeah, for all of the reasons that well, we've mentioned. And the other one as well is, and this is something, again, that's, that's plagued my clinics and you and I, Jake, have had lots of discussions around this, is patients that come in as a first-time patient to you, but they've been clinic hopping, they might have seen other practitioners over the years, they've built up all this filler, they don't know where it is, they might deny having any filler in them at all, mm. maybe they've got a facial implant. None of these things that you can tell until you're at, and imagine like you can just scan someone's face and go, yep, you've got filler yeah. here, 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 and here. Yeah. And you actually know what you yeah, actually so know it, what you're sort of yeah. looking at. So David, so exactly like you were saying, David. So I actually use it a lot in my uh, consult, like yep. any consultations for fillers, for surgeries, any patients. And sometimes it completely changes the plan. Like yeah, for right. example, the other day I had a patient who came in for uh, I think she came in for chin filler and for neck liposuction. And no one has started looking for so she already had an implant. She had buckle fat removal, which was she had still had a chunk left on one side. She had gone on the other side. And then she had like all this fullness here. But, you know, once I looked, it was just she had very, very thin subcutaneous fat. And then she had huge digastrics. And then she had huge submandibular glands. So if somebody had to go and say, do it like Kybella on that person that I think, you know, you, you do a bunch yes. of Kybella, Jake. I do some Kybella. So if somebody had to do that, she would be a complete failure because it would all go into muscle and probably would, you know, mm. uh, you know, get inflammation in the muscle, inflammation in the submandibular glands. She wouldn't get any results. And then that contributes to the failure of the treatment too. Do you, so do you I think that's kind of a big part of it. Do you see, yeah. can I, because do you hear how much information she got out just by putting an ultrasound on? Yep. Yep. It's like driving. It's like driving a car without. Yeah. It's like driving a car without without like a being able to see out your 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 mirror, your screen, your your front screen of your car. You're just driving, but you don't know where you're going. <laughs> yeah, it's a consult. You know, I just you know she came to me and you know I told her everything that was going here, 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 and everything in her face would completely change the plan. We did totally different thing, and uh, and didn't do the thing that potentially would be not helpful and potentially even probably you know, yeah. could develop some so, complications. So she could, see, she could see she had a lot of glandular tissue. She had a very low subcutaneous amount of fat. I mean, for me, it's I hear her talking and for me, it's the same. We're so used to ultrasound that you don't realize all the information that you get out of all uh, just scanning somebody. Yeah. But you make a pre-treatment plan. Yes, that's definitely true. 
Yeah. And you also see if people had former fillers. So suppose you had four months ago hyaluronic acid, not even a permanent filler, but you had hyaluronic acid that will dissolve over time. So if you add more hyaluronic acid as a new practitioner, patients may say, oh, this is disappearing very quickly. But you also have to take into account that the hyaluronic acid already being injected will dissolve as well. So you get much more information. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we call it Belchira, not Kybella, but same thing. It's one of the most patient-specific treatments that we have, you know, unlike Botox and filler where everyone can benefit from from some degree. But you're either a good candidate or not a good candidate for for Kybella or Belchira. So, you know, having a scanner to literally look at that prepotismal fat and say, sorry, you're not a good candidate and, and not yep. guess and not waste thousands of dollars trying and and maybe even risking skin necrosis because it's too thin. Yep. I mean, what an amazing tool that is. You know, you can, yeah. And you, you can, measure, yeah. you measure the thickness before and you measure the thickness after treatment. Yes, you can prove it. Because sometimes the photos, you know, you can't tell or they're flexing their neck and it's not the same angle. But as you say, if you can just measure the fat and say, look, it's a centimeter thinner or, or whatever it may be, then it's proof. Yeah. Can't argue with the ultrasound. And not with me. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> now, just going back to complications, um, how do you differentiate between an artery and a vein? Can you do that on an ultrasound? Well, an artery... It's positive. Yeah. And you see it. You see boom, 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 boom. And vein is floating. And a vein is very easy to compress. So that's why you have to adjust your technique. You have to have a very light hand. You will compress all the veins. Yeah. But you also use it to diagnose because uh, you just push your probe a little bit and then your vein disappears. Um, they're bigger. They're more straight. Mm. Um, it's definitely a different structure than an artery. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say as well, I, I could assume there'd be some utility in terms of actually ruling out occlusions. I mean, you could get like a hematoma, you could get like a huge amount of swelling yeah. that you think is an occlusion or a patient that's catastrophizing. Because, you know, there are, I know it would be very difficult for people to believe this, but there are patients out there that sometimes catastrophize or they might be a <laughs> hypochondriac and they might be, you know, thinking it the worst has occurred and actually having this tool to say, look, it's not an occlusion. You just have a lot of swelling. We've got a hematoma, but we don't have to put any dissolving in you and just give people that. That, Great point. That, so yeah. it's it's the opposite as well. Sometimes you, you might just be squirting highlights mm-hmm. into someone for absolutely no reason at all for something you think is an occlusion that isn't. And then you bruise the hell mm-hmm. out of them even more. It looks yeah. more like an occlusion and it's still not. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. A hematoma is very easy to recognize with ultrasound. Also inflammation in skin. The other way it works around the well. So if you do have a vascular adverse event... Uh, patients see that the flow is restored themselves. They see the difference. And they're also... Um, happy. They're also more um, trust the process that they heal. Yeah. Yeah. I was very lucky to be part of one actually, maybe two months ago, a colleague called me um, on a patient that had ejected himself in the chin. And I, th- I think I sent you the photo, Leonie, but um, we managed to visualize it under his scanner. He's got actually a high-end Vino that Stuart sold him. I won't give his name away, but uh, yeah, we, we managed to get our needle into the artery, deploy a little bit of Hylase, about 50 units, I think we used. We think it was the submental artery and um, we saw resolution in front of our eyes. We saw that patch that was a bit dusky get better. So <laughs> it works and we're, you know, I'm going to call myself still an amateur, but it, it, it can be done. So yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. But but what is the limit of the blood vessel that you can't see or you can't um, get a needle in? I mean, what is the limit of ultrasound? I think it's about one millimeter. One millimeter. Okay, fair enough. And yeah, I mean, it's just harder to get the 
that's the, uh, sorry, harder to get the needle into vessel that's less than one millimeter. You can still see them. So, you know, we can use a, a color Doppler and the power Doppler for those really, really small. Mm. We can see tiny, tiny vessels and kind of depending on the device, you can even see like capillary flow. So you can see really, really tiny vessels depending okay. on the device and the settings that you use. Um, Leone, you, you've got a bit of a theory with occlusions. I remember when I met you about a month ago, you said that you don't think all occlusions are occlusions or, or, or vascular events are occlusions. You think there's some spasm think, of the artery. Non non occlusions are occlusions. Um, we we call them vascular occlusions. Um, we are seriously lacking signs in our business. Hmm. Um, I have my PhD in filler complications, and I can honestly tell you that my research wasn't great. Um, we do observational studies. We're lacking money. We're lacking academic centers. So. We do say a lot, we do not have a lot of proof. And even if we treat a lot amount of patients with duplex ultrasound, I start to recognize patterns. I don't even have proof what's going on. Um, but what we do see is that we have an instant, instant clinical improvement, instant, instantly patients are relieved of their symptoms, and we see an instant co- flow coming back. It's at the needle. Mm. And if you look at one theory, and all remember what I'm saying is my hypothesis, but there are a lot of hypotheses and none of them are proved. So if you look at the hypothesis that you have filler blocking an artery or filler spreading into different arteries, if you look at the spreading, if I'm able to dissolve with one injection um, the whole blood flow, I'm not so sure if we have all the filler particles being spread out in the whole skin. It still might be. It still might be that you have a filler in the artery, um, but what we think it's spasm. So maybe that filler in the artery is causing spasm. Mm. Um, but what we see is honestly instant flow coming back. Arterial spasm is a very well-known uh, diagnosed medical um, thing to happen. Uh, but but still, that's what we see from pattern recognition. And also um, because we see that all the skin patterns, if you start to look at all the images that you see on Instagram, on social media, but also in articles and publications, all skin patterns look alike. All chin vascular occlusions look alike. All noses look alike. All forehead. They may differ, but they have the same pattern. So we think there are perforators involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's such a recognizable standard pattern, we actually believe it's more spasm and perforators. But then again, that's what we think. Uh, we don't have th- we don't have the same proof as all those things are not being proved. But but I guess taking your theory, if it's the filler causing the spasm, that the solution is the same: get rid of the filler. Or get rid of the spasm. So how would you do that by leaving the filler there? Um, It depends. We still don't know. Are we removing filler? Are we dissolving spasm? Um, Again, there's not much science, but there are two good articles also showing that hyaluronidase um, improves scapulary refill. Mm. Um, One is a very good research group that showed that in mice, not in human beings. Um, and we, we still don't know, but we do see that we improve capillary refill. We're not always sure that we're dissolving filler. Okay. Stella, there's, what, there's a lot of research on, uh, yeah, using hyaluronidase. Yeah. Uh, hyaluronidase can actually uh, produce some vasodilatious 
via the release of nitric oxide because it leads to the release of nitric oxide in the yeah. tissues. Uh, the question, of course, is, you know, how much, but, you know, they have tried to use it for uh, heart attacks. Uh, I think they used it actually for uh, cerebrovascular events. Um, yeah. There was not a lot of studies on that, but they have used it no. for that. Uh, the question with that is so that, you know, why is it that somebody will put 50 vials of hyaluronidase and they still don't have improvement of that spasm? Yeah. So it's it's not all that straightforward. In your opinion, yeah. do, you, do in your research, maybe, Leonie, does hyaluronidase um, move across blood vessel walls? So if you, you know, if you waterlog an area, does the hyaluronidase still get into the vessel, in your opinion, or not? Um, to be honest... There's inflammation going on. If you have a vascular adverse event, we advise physicians not to inject hyalase before they refer to us. Sometimes they do, and then you have more inflammation, so a mm. bit of blurry skin. We're not looking... So, yes, maybe we dissolve filler, but we're actually looking at the vascular pattern. Yeah. We recognize abnormal flow, and we inject in the area of abnormal flow. So we made a change, so we're not focusing anymore on the filler we truly focus on the abnormal flow that's how you recognize it and that's where we eject very specifically um so yes maybe filler in an artery looks different and maybe we do dissolve the artery maybe we just inject and release the, um, the, the spasm um but it works and it works uh, with good clinical outcome and then we still have to discover why it works yeah Fair enough. Now, the last main reason we discussed about using ultrasound was being more precise with our injections. And I know both of you have done some really cool videos where I think, Leonie, you've, you've mentioned already about filler black backflow. So if you put your cannula in and inject, you see a column of filler going back towards where you came. So can you just tell us a bit about that? Because that has some practical implications of, of what you might change um, if you knew about that, um, mm. you know, from from a, a new injector's perspective, what could they do differently? There's always backflow. You create an opening and a tract with your needle and your cannula. Mm -hmm. So it's not a problem, but you need to be aware of it, that if you do a bolus injection and you look with ultrasound, first you will see that the filler will come up along the tract that you created, and then you have a bolus. Um and once you're aware of it, you can make sure that most of your product is in the intended plane of injection. And it depends. So if you look at if you look at a temple, and, and Jake, you know now how a temple with ultrasound looks. Mm -hmm. If you're near to the crest, you have your superficial fat pad and then a little bit of muscle. If you go perpendicular with your needle, your product will also end up a little bit in the fat compartment yeah. and superficial. If you're deeper, if you go a bit deeper, you have much more muscle and much more room to keep your filler staying in the muscle. We're not injecting on periost, right? If you look at ultrasound, your needle is touching the bone, but your filler is in the muscle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's very nice to see. So once you be aware of how long your needle is, how your angle is, you start to create better treatment injections to keep most of your filler in the desired plane. And there's a great video that uh, Stella has uh, on Instagram injecting the fascial, the interfascial plane with a cannula. And she keeps 
her her sort of angle of her cannula is almost at the crest. Then she starts to inject, and you see that the whole cannula, sort of the product is flowing back along the cannula, but her cannula is in the desired plane. Hmm. That partially depends on what layer of the tissue you are too. So, you know, the interfascial plane, that's very yeah. loose connective tissue, right? So it's very loose, very easy for fillet yeah. to spread. If, say, I was like in the dermis, not that I wanted to be in the dermis, but then it's very hard that you know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so so what you see, what Stella does is she, she, yeah, so she starts to inject when her cannula is completely up, very high up at the crest. Then you have backflow, but who cares because you're in the fascial plane. Yeah. So you can use it to your advantage sometimes is basically what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah, and yeah. to avoid lumps and bumps and migration. Yeah, I was going to say, because you, you meet injectors all the time, particularly through the cheek, and they'll say, oh, patient's looking a bit puffy, but I put the filler down on bone, so it can't be filler, whereas I don't agree with that. And, and particularly from what you're saying, it's probably just filler that's tracked up the needle path. Or even for tear troughs, which is just the area of just every injector's hate. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. got a, a tear trough patient that's an issue and just even don't even know where it's gone, how like it's injected here, then it's moved there. It's, it's yeah, it's... Applications seem endless. Yeah. Um, what are your guys' um, experience with injecting Botox yeah, under yeah, ultrasound? That that fascinates me, particularly for the lower face, because you know masseters is that what you sort of well, well masseters that's a big chunky target, yeah. but for something like the DAO for the corner of the mouth or the mentalis, you know you can easily visualize these things on ultrasound. I've done it and seen it myself, mm. but without an ultrasound, these things can go very wrong, and you can have an asymmetrical smile for three months. So, do you ru- routinely do that? Well, maybe we'll start with. Stella and then come to Leonie? I don't, and I never have any complications. <laughs> <laughs> no, guys, you have to get used to me. Uh, no, but actually, I, I don't, and occasionally I do have complications. But uh, I think it's been a while since I, you know, uh, kind yeah. of dropped the DLI. Um, but yeah, I just have not used ultrasound for that. What I do uh, actually want to use it maybe a little bit more the frontalis, you know, everybody talks about the failure of both drugs in the frontalis, like yeah. especially in the last couple of years. So many patients, physicians say that, you know, it works here, Botox, you know, other toxins too, and then doesn't work in the frontalis. Uh, and I think what we don't realize that the frontalis muscle is so deep that a lot of times we just end up injecting in the subcutaneous tissues, yeah. you know, the uh, subcutaneous fat. And then the whatever toxin we have, it just doesn't diffuse through the gallet because muscle is enveloped in the fascia. Mm. So I think a lot of times we just waste Botox here and we don't inject in the muscle. So I think using ultrasound there is actually, it's helpful for injectors to understand the anatomy and kind of the techniques and how to use it. Okay, fair. And yeah. how about you, Lenny? Well, yeah, so the frontalis muscle is so tiny. It's impressive how tiny it is. Um, well, the, the the annoying thing with ultrasound is once you start using ultrasound, you keep using ultrasound. <laughs> because don't forget, ultrasound They're is annoying. fine. So, yeah. So, I start using ultrasound on the masseter muscle. And you say it's a big chunk muscle, so you can't miss it. Once you start doing with ultrasound, you cannot do it without ultrasound anymore. Because, you know, do you want to have a slimming 
treatment? Do you want to have a functional treatment? Do you want to be below the inferior, the deep inferior tendon? What is the most movable part of your muscle? Um, I can tell looking with ultrasound that people had Botox because you see changes towards the muscle. Uh, we're, we're going to do research in that area now. So you see, you have a different grayscale. So if you put Botox, you have a functional, that, that part of the muscle becomes less functional. Mm -hmm. And you can see it with ultrasound. So if you do in that exactly same area, your Botox, you're not effective. So you want to re-inject in a different area. Yeah. And then you do your Botox in a certain area and you have movability of your muscle in a different area when you come the next time because you train your muscle differently. So you already see there are a lot of things to see with ultrasound. So um, I take my ultrasound. I ask the patients, do you want to have slimming both or functional? And I very specifically inject underneath above the muscle. I inject in the most movable part. Uh, much better outcome, much better longer duration. I avoid the areas where I treated before because I can still see that with your ultrasound. You see the changes. So you keep effectiveness. And uh, unluckily enough, I did start with the DAO as well. And I have a lot of patients that I know for a long time. And I do one, one side ultrasound guided and the other side not. And uh, it's annoying because now my patients start to make images two weeks after treatment, mm -hmm. and they say, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that the site you did with ultrasound is more effective than the other site. Mm. Um, anyway, that's just where, where I'm beginning. Uh, I think you're more targeted, and maybe it's something that you should do if people say I'm not responsive to Botox anymore, for well, example. Well, I'll tell you why I ask. A, a friend, she DM'd me on Instagram and said, how do you do your DAOs? And we both agreed we'd had a similar technique. But then I said, I've had a look with ultrasound. And even though it's, you know, a more superficial muscle than DLI, DLI they sort of cross over. It's not as superficial as maybe you think, and you know. No. And, and therefore, are you wasting your Botox or are you potentially mm -hmm. going to contact other muscles if you're not in the, the DAO? So that's how this whole conversation came about. And um, yeah. Yeah, I just like you said. Once you've got an ultrasound and you can look, it's very hard to go back and and go blind again. Yeah, so it's a bit annoying. It's yeah. kind of a bit scary, but exciting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we could bring Stuart in just for the sort of final part of um, the podcast because I'm aware that you guys have got Sundays to get on with, and Stella's got to go to bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stuart, there, there's a, a whole ton of devices around, and you know you sell several yourself. Um, yeah. What would you say about sort of high end versus low end, or or, or not low end, but handheld? What, what you know? How, how would you describe yeah. your your range? I guess it's a good question. Um, and Vino Ultrasound has the whole range, so they're a premium ultrasound company. So they do everything from you know the radiology units right down to the handheld. And I think what it really comes down to is matching the right ultrasound machine with the right user. So. Everyone has, the, you know, they're going to use it as a tool for their own, you know, personal needs. So I think there's no point in getting a handheld if you're going to be using it on every patient, you know, all day, every day, and you want a nice big screen. And at the same time, there's no point spending, you know, $100,000 on a big fancy ultrasound machine if you're just getting into it and you kind of just want to learn and you're not 100% sure yet. So I think it depends on, you know, where the user's at and, you know, just having that conversation about what they're going to be using it for, how their practice is set up, what type of stuff they like to do. 
and just figuring out which machine is is the right one. So I don't think there's a there's one machine that you just have to say this is the only machine you can get. Um, it's it's a lot more individualized than that. Mm. Now we know you were um, a physio by trade, and you've you've transitioned across to um, distributing devices, and I'm sure many other things yeah. as well. But can you tell us a little bit more about the company, the background, how long it's been around for, just so we can get a bit of a flavour? Yeah, so. The company that I distribute for, Vino, has been around for more than a decade. So they're, they're a very uh, big company. They make great machines. Um, our company in Australia, Real-Time Ultrasound Machines, we distribute machines that, you know, our philosophy is really simple. We do want to match the, you know, the health professional with the ultrasound machine for them. And then we also want to make sure that we support them, you know, with whatever they need on their ultrasound journey, whether they're just starting out in ultrasound and we need to kind of help them to find good courses and good educators or, you know, help them set up the right presets for their machine and, you know, give them ongoing support with their software and, you know, upgrading needs and all that type of stuff. Um, but, yeah, so that's that's essentially what we do at Real-Time Ultrasound. We, we try and match the right ultrasound machine um, with the health professional and then just support them along the way. I do not completely agree with, with Stuart. And uh, as we have three male in here, if you yeah. ask a male out of car, he wants to drive, you yeah. know, yeah, so I would like to have the best high defense. I, I, I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. what I want. Yeah. Okay. The only but reason it's... I disagree with that is, and I agree, if somebody said to me, you know, money is not an issue, what machine should I get? I would say get the best one. But I think the, the trade-off is that some people will choose nothing if they can't get, you know, if they can't, for example, have the best machine, then they're not going to have a machine. And I think instead, if if all you can get is the handheld machine, you know, we have an amazing handheld machine and you can, uh, I think you've seen some of the images on it now. Um, and I think the presets, you know, where they need to be. Um, so it's good enough, but you're yeah. right. If you can get the best machine, get the best machine, a hundred percent. And it makes your job but, easier. Yeah. But a cheap second-hand car also drives, right? So in my practice, I have a very high-end, uh, very good device, but I also have the portable ones. And if we give courses, we also we teach people actually on the high-end devices because then they know what they need to see. And we also have the portable ones. And if I use the portable ones, I'm disappointed for 10 minutes and then I'm fine. <laughs> because yeah. they yeah. do work. Yeah. They do work. But yeah, look, you're 100% right. And I think um, it's actually easier to learn on a better machine because the picture is clearer and that type of stuff. So it's, it is a challenge. So, you know, that's, it's a very important part of my job is to make sure that I get it right in terms of recommending a machine. Because if somebody needs a lot of help and they want to see the clearest and they are committed to doing it, then yeah, it makes sense to get a better machine. And yeah, that's a conversation we have every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Stuart, you and I were talking, I don't know, last week, and we estimated there's probably less than 30 people in Australia who might have a an ultrasound either in their yeah. clinic or using it regularly. So it's still very, very small. What's your view on, you know, the, the demand and, and the learning curve in the next five years? How, how many people do you reckon will be having it in, in five years' time? Look, in five years, I do think there's there's going to just be. I, I do think it is moving more towards the standard of care than just. In the last two years, it's been a real curiosity. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversation. People were really kind of curious about the technology in Australia. This is, um, but no one was really starting to use it yet. In the last probably two months, um, that's probably where a lot of these thirty people have come from. Honestly, in the last two months or so, people are starting to get machines. There's now courses that people can go on 
they can come out and they can learn and a really um, important piece of the puzzle that was maybe missing. Um, and yeah, in the next five years, I, I do think it's going to become more or less a standard. You know, in the same way it is for an anaesthetist who, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't think of doing a, a procedure without the ultrasound. I do think that it's going to come into aesthetics in the same way. Same for sports medicine, same for, you know, obstetrics. They all started off with ultrasound. They all use it in different ways, but they all use it. Yeah, I don't think you'd want to do an epidural without a without an ultrasound. Um, <laughs> um, so in terms of the support that you offer, so if, for Australian practitioners that might be interested in setting, getting hold of a, of a device, what does it look like in terms of support and training from, from your company's perspective? So we, we provide the training at the level that's, you know, appropriate for us in terms of, you know, teaching people how to use the device. We can certainly give them a lot of good information on where to start. I do think it's really important that anyone who gets an ultrasound device um, invest in their education as well. So I know that you guys have got a course coming up and I think it's it's really important if you're going to go and spend, you know, thousands of dollars on an ultrasound machine, you do want to take the time to really learn how to use it properly. Um, in terms of what we provide, we can certainly, you know, help people to get onto those type of courses. But we can also come out and help them, you know, learn to a certain level with the device themselves as well. So we want to make yeah. sure basically our, our goal is to make sure everyone knows how to use the machine. So we don't want to see an ultrasound machine in the corner gathering dust. Yeah. yeah so exactly. we, have, we have the Dutch Finno guy coming in in two weeks time in my practice and right. he will be looking just at surface they will be looking at the perfect preset so what yeah. do you want in your preset it's muscular superficial do you want to add some arterial do you want to have to gain so um yes that's something that i'm not good into i know what picture i like i don't know how to create it and that's uh, a very typical and the only sent, uh, we I sent the only some pictures of some different structures in the face and said, "What do you think about this?" She said, eh, "It's all right, but I like it more like the you know the pictures on the Instagram." So <laughs> I went back and just tweaked a few presets and sent them again, um, and I think it was a little bit better, right? Or a little bit, more a little bit. Those ones? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Just a hard task, man. Yeah. Got a bit of work to do by the sounds of things, Stuart. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we do. So uh, well, we've got a. A partnership announcement to make, don't we? We Jake? do, we do. So, um, if anyone is interested in maybe getting a Vino device, what we can do is if you sign up to worldwideweb.insideaesthetics.com forward slash ultrasound, leave your details. We'll pass all of that to Stuart, and then he can arrange maybe a little session where you can have a play with a Vino device. Do, do you cover all of Australia, or is it just Sydney for now? Yeah, we cover all over Australia. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we yeah. didn't mention the discount yet. Jeremy. Oh, yes. Well, yes. and if those people want to then proceed and purchase a device, Stuart has kindly said 10% off that device, which isn't a small amount when these devices are, you know, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000. So it's a good saving. Now, last bit of news, um, as Stuart alluded to, um, Leone's company, Cutaneous Facial Ultrasound, finally are here in Australia. And um, luckily, I'll be hosting that event um, with her colleague, Peter Velthius. So Peter will be here on the 10th of August. Um, we'll be at the Adena Hotel in Surrey Hills here in Sydney. Um, the easiest way to apply on the course is just to go to my Instagram bio link. So Dr. Jake Sloan, click that link and just scroll down to ultrasound course. All the information is there. You can book online. Um, the prices are quoted in euros because, of course, uh, Cutaneous are based in Holland. But, you know, if you're interested in ultrasound, if we stimulated your, 
you know, curiosity through the podcast, please come down. I'll be there, but there'll be certainly more experienced um, teachers and it'll be a lot of fun as well. And I'm going to try and organize a dinner if people are up for that after. Are so you, are you yeah. paying? No, I'm not paying. Oh, That's extra. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Leonie, just, just tell us about the course very briefly. Cause you, you know, you're the founder. Tell us. It's a very boring course. It's I not. wouldn't do it. <laughs> uh, I would skip the course and just buy. No, the thing is, it's actually it's it's a bit sad that we exist because normally, normally residents, te- you know, normally in hospital you get your training. So um, we have to do it out hospital because we are not academically based. Um, we wanted to create at first the perfect course. We did a two-day course, and then at uh, day two, people were falling asleep because there was much too new, a lot of new information. Uh, so now we have e-learning, and um, the e-learning gives you a lot of information before you start, a lot of tissue recognition. And day one is just hands-on, 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 uh, hands-on a chicken and uh, also a lot of games and we do notice that people if they do that one day course are able you need practice but you have your driver license so i'm talking male language now huh? mm-hmm. um so so yes you can do it so once that you got your your course you have to think up front how am i going to use it how am i going to implement it am i going to do every last patient am i going to use it for every temple but you build up experience and we're doing these courses now for quite a while and people start using it so it's possible there's a learning curve it's not as difficult as you think it is and it's fun it is honestly it's fun yeah. yeah. So just to summarize, there's, there's about five plus hours of, of e-learning, which, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like a lot to go through. But if you dedicate about half an hour a day, you can blitz through it in about six days. But that gives you the language. So then on the day of the hands-on, when you come to us in Sydney, you can actually, you know, use that simple knowledge and actually get more out of it. So, you know, don't come thinking, oh, they're going to teach me all the basics, because actually the basics is easier to do, like you said, in e-learning. It's too boring to do in a, in a yeah. lecture. Mm. It's um, you starting to... To, to get yourself used to ultrasound imaging, so to make your brain already um, used to the patterns. And then on the course, it's you making ultrasound anatomy visible. So it's yes. your technique that we're training you on. And Excellent. Stuart will be there. All his Vino gizmos will be there. We'll actually try and have a selection of other brands as well. So, you know, we're not biased. We'll show you everything that we can. And it'll be a lot of fun. Yes. You should come down. I might come down, actually. Yeah. And as if that wasn't enough, we've also got a special Inside Aesthetics discount code. So when you go to the link in my bio link on Instagram, when you go to the checkouts, you actually get another 350 euros off. Wow. I thought you were going to say a, few, a uh, free set of steak knives, no? Just- no. <laughs> no, no, just a discount on the ultrasound <laughs> okay. course. So what you do, you type in these letters, I-A-X, cutaneous. So again, I-A, the letter X, and then the word cutaneous. And then if you click apply code, that will get you discount. Excellent. Now, before we go, we've got a couple of listener questions. Anything in, we didn't cover in the podcast that we need to ask? Yes. Yes. Just got three questions, guys. Maybe... Stella will take this one. So this is from MD Cosmetic Injections. You know Michelle Dodd. You met her in Paris. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. What exactly do you see with a vessel when it's in vasospasm? A bit like what Leonie was saying. What what does it actually look like on a scan? So in the spasm, so if you know kind of your patterns of your vessels, you can see that it will be either smaller or it will be totally absent. 
I mean, again, it's kind of hard to tell that the vessel is not there if there's nothing. Uh, but yeah, if you just kind of know the patterns of normal blood supply, then you cannot buy vessels. Kind of gives you an idea. You know, if you're looking in the area of some kind of a vascular incident, you know, then you kind of have basically that clinical suspicion too that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think I would I would say that you know other other than that you know there's all kinds of other like arterial spasm and venous spasm and uh, I don't think it's probably relevant in this. Yeah. Well, would it be a simple idea to look at the normal side and then yeah. reflect back and then say, oh, it's smaller? Yeah, look at the normal side just for comparison. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things is um, that it's accompanied with a lot of hypervascularity on the other sides. So you see a lot of vessels being dilated and mm-hmm. then you have silence. Okay. Mm. Fair enough. Well, we'll leave it at that. that that's a quite a complex yeah. question. Yeah. Oh, Martina, a good friend, Martina, Martina Lavery from Sydney. Um, she's asked, do all fillers look the same on ultrasound? So, for example, difference between G primes and age of the filler, et cetera. I think they mostly look the same. Uh, you know, there's some people that look like, that, you know, the filler deposits will look a little bit different shape. Um I don't think our devices are good enough to actually distinguish, you know, the actual density of the filler. I think very high, high uh, end devices, very, very high frequency. You can see a little bit, but the shape of that filler deposit will depend a lot of the technique that person uses. So uh, I think for me, it would be very hard to tell okay. what, so you- what HA filler was used. Thank you. Um, Dr. Ali Jaburi, um, he's an aesthetic physician from... Yara in Melbourne, in Australia. Um, he's asked for facial aesthetics. What's better, a linear probe or a hockey stick? Leonie? Oh, it's all preference. I never use a hockey stick. Uh, I rather prefer a longer linear probe than a hockey stick. The resolution is different. Oh, it's just, you know, do you like to play um, in a shirt or in... It's, it's really preference. Um, so for me, it's a linear probe. Okay. Perfect. Well, I think we've done that to death. We've asked everything we wanted to ask. Thank you all for joining us um, and dragging you out of bed or making you stay up late at night. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but we shall... Thank um, you, guys. No, no problem at all. Thank you again. And um, yeah, I look forward to doing the course. It'll be great. Looking forward to it. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Stuart, again for supporting yeah. us and thank for you. the offer for our listeners. Thank you. Take care then, guys. Okay. Bye. So great to see everyone. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 